a book called Strangers Drowning, grappling with impossible idealism, drastic choices, and the overpowering urge to help. What does this mean? It means that Larissa has dug deep into the psychological roots and existential dilemmas, motivating those rare individuals practicing lives of extreme ethical commitment. Real-life stories of unimaginable selflessness, along with deep meditations on the shocking implications of these ethical facts. What are we talking about? We're talking about questions such as how best to live in a world of suffering. How much can I afford to give, and should I give more? Am I responsible for other individuals, even at the expense of my own friends and family? What am I entitled to as an individual, knowing that so many others lack so much? Exploring these questions gracefully, Larissa grounds her philosophical inquiry in the lives of do-gooders, major, major do-gooders, folks, ranging from central India to a desolate part of Baltimore, from the foster homes of Vermont to the suicide clinics of Japan. These are the most unusual, unusual people. A couple adopts two children in distress, but then they think, if they can change two lives, why not four or ten? They adopt twenty. But how do, how do they weigh the needs of unknown children in distress against the needs of the children they already have. Another couple founds a leprosy colony in rural India. Their dogs are eaten by panthers. Their two small children survive. But what if they hadn't? How would their parents' risk have been judged? A woman offers to donate her own kidney to a complete stranger. Has she saved one person's life at the expense of someone else's? Why stop at a kidney? To what extent can the human body be used as a tool for the common good? We honor such generosity and high ideals, but when we call people do-gooders, there's skepticism, even hostility. Folks, stay tuned for this fascinating, intriguing interview about the book strangers drowning. But first, news and notes in psychology and medicine. Some of you may recall that I've done two interviews with Robert Whitaker, who wrote a book called Anatomy of an Epidemic. What Whitaker's research brought to us is that the SSRIs in particular, the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, the medications that are referred to as SSRIs, what Whitaker has brought to us is that not only are these medications not helping people, they may be work making people worse. Whitaker's thesis is that many people who are supposedly suffering from abnormal brain chemistry are really not suffering from abnormal brain chemistry. This is a misguided theory. And so when they take these medications which affect their neurotransmitters, they are creating abnormal neurotransmitters, and they're suffering as a result. 
Then you'll recall, some of you who, who listen regularly to the program, that I had Dr. Julie Holland on, psychiatrist from Harvard and New York. And she wrote a book called Moody Bitches. And one of the things that Julie enlightens us about is that there are 26 million women in the United States taking SSRIs. Both these scholars are bringing to our attention the issues involved with these mind-altering medications. Six out of 10 adults in the United States take prescription medicine. Yes, did you know that nine out of 10 people over 65 take at least one drug and four out of 10 of them take five or more? How about this little goodie? Insured adults under 65 are twice as likely to take medicine as the uninsured. What does that make us think? And the more overweight people are, the more likely they take medication. Yes. So what does that mean? It means that since approaching 70% of the American population right now are obese or overweight, and the more overweight people are, the more likely they are to take medication, we've got a country full of people who are taking medication, which leads me to the present study the title of which is Taking Antidepressants While Pregnant is Linked to Increased Autism. A new study shows that women who take antidepressants in the later stages of pregnancy are more likely to have a child with autism. The study specifies one particular group of antidepressants. And guess which it is? The SSRIs, the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors such as Prozac, Zoloft, Paxil. Yep. Use of antidepressants, specifically those SSRIs during the second or third trimester, increases the risk of autism spectrum disease, even after considering maternal depression. Wow. What to do? What to do? This was a study, by the way, of more than 145,000 children born in Quebec between 1998 and 2009, so this isn't mere speculation. The study found 4,700 babies, or 3% of the total group, whose mothers took some type of antidepressant while pregnant. Only 31 babies, or 1% of the group whose mother took antidepressants in later pregnancy, were later diagnosed. Well, hmm... This was reported in the Journal of the American Medical Association. You're welcome to follow up on it. Uh, you do know that uh, autism has been increasing and has been of concern in this country. Um, one in 45 kids in the United States have been diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder, so that's you know roughly 2%. 2% is a very large number when you have 370 million people. Folks, it's again another warning about the SSRIs. Um, I promised our guest that I would not go over five or six minutes and it's already at 10 minutes, so I'm gonna reserve the rest of news and notes for next week and let's get on to our interview. Our guest today, our guest today is a noted journalist she has been a staff writer at The New Yorker since 1998. 
Her subjects have included Barack Obama and Noam Chomsky, amongst others. She has been a senior editor at Lingua Franca and an advisory editor at the Paris Review. She lives in New York City. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Larissa. Thanks so much for having me on the show, Richard. This book is like no other that I've ever seen. And let's begin by telling us, how did you come upon this subject? How did you come to write about this topic? Well, you know, I've always been fascinated by people with a profound moral commitment. And I was frustrated that we didn't read more about them, and I wondered why that was. I didn't see these people in journalism, and I didn't see them in fiction either. And I started talking to people about this, and I, ha- I started getting the sense that there are um, sort of two – well, there are a lot of uh, conflicting reasons for this, and I'll just tell you about two of them. Um, one is that there's this sense that while evil people and evil is uh, fascinating and complex, good people are boring. They're simple. They're, or, they're, they're, they're not worth thinking about. And I thought this was very wrong. And uh, – but I kept encountering this. I, I asked at one point a friend of mine who's a novelist, I said, why don't you novelists write about characters like this? Some do, of course, but very rarely. And he gave me this look of complete contempt as though I'd asked him, you know, why don't you write a nice novel about bunnies and butterflies? And I thought, you know, this is the kind of thing I have to combat. And then, But then on the other hand, there's an equally powerful um, prejudice against these people that they are, um, and and contradictory prejudice, that they are overly complex, that they're twisted, that there's something strange about them, something unnatural, not quite human, because, you know, it's, it's, it's the prevalent assumption, and has been for for a long time, that humans are basically selfish. Um, they look out for themselves, and at most they look out for their immediate family. And so anything that diverges from that expectation is a strangeness that needs to be explained. And I wanted to I, – I felt that, that there were people out there who were living extraordinary lives of moral commitment, and I wanted to uh, – to, to, to to untangle them from this tangle of suspicions and skepticism that uh, I felt obscured what was really beautiful and grand about their lives. So you're saying that our lack of attention to people who do, quote, good things is somewhat similar to newspapers and the media in general uh, mostly showing us sensational things, uh, accidents, killings, things that have a lot of drama, but they don't typically tell us stories about just lovely things that are happening uh, in our daily lives. It's a similar kind of phenomenon. I'm not sure it's quite the same thing, because what you're talking about is how the media um, gravitates towards the extraordinary and the strange and the and the um, sensational as opposed to the ordinary every day. I don't think these people are ordinary and every day. They are also in their way sensational and um, not in a crude, violent way, but in the sense that they are unusual. They're extraordinary. They're, they're the sort of person you don't see every day. They are living lives that are very different from most people's lives. Um, so it's not that they're so ordinary. I wish they were more ordinary. It's not that they're so ordinary. It's more that they are um, their extraordinariness lies in their goodness. And that's something that 
um, we don't think much about because we think when we think of extraordinary people, we think either of famous people, obviously, or or extraordinary evil. And I think extraordinary good is something that's not as much um, thought about. And, you know, there's another reason I wanted to write about these people. There's many reasons. But another reason, I, I started with a puzzle, another puzzle, which was why don't the rest of us do more? Why don't we give more? And this is not a rhetorical puzzle. This is a real puzzle, because if you think about it, we all know, we've all experienced this, um, that, that often giving something away makes you happier than keeping it. Everyone's had this experience, whether it's a tiny thing, like a small amount of money to a person on the street or, uh, you know, helping someone up who's fallen down. It gives you a warm glow. It makes you happy. Or if it's a large thing, like it's a large amount of money, or it's, as in some of the people I wrote about in my book, one of their kidneys, um, this, this makes you feel good. And so the mystery to me is why don't we do more? And I think that part of the answer, I think there's many answers to that question, but part of the answer I thought was precisely that we don't know much about people who are doing more. We wonder if they, we think there might be something strange about them. Their lives are so different from our lives. And so I wanted to um, to work on that small part of the answer to, to say, these are the people who are doing more and they're not living the either the very strange or the desperately bleak lives that you may imagine they do. They live happy lives that are just different from the rest of ours. I certainly see your point about they're, they're not being ordinary because certainly there's nothing ordinary about founding a leper colony in India or going into right. the jungles of South America or giving your kidney to a complete stranger or, right. or adopting 15 children. There's nothing ordinary about it. But in some way... Perhaps it's not as sensational as some of the other things that, that we see. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm just wondering why. This is the this book is a first for me that you focused on this particular group. I've been studying people for 50 years, and it's really exciting to come across something you know so new and so and so very interesting. Um, shall we talk a bit about what you then did after you got the concept that you want to write this book? What was your next step? Well. You know, you can't Google. Uh, I needed to find people to write about. I mm -hmm. needed to find these extraordinary people that I had imagined, and you can't Google them. You can't. I, I noticed to my amusement that if you Google saintly, uh, you know, all that comes up most of the time is is not saintly, not at all saintly. Or if you look in newspapers, I always try to find people who had been written about. So what I did is I, I tried to come up with uh, something that they might do, um, such a person as I was looking for. And once you've come up with that idea, then you can find them quite easily. So one thing I thought such a person might do was give away a kidney to a stranger. And once you have that idea, you can go to a transplant program. You can go to, um, in my case, an online website that matches. Uh, it's a, a weird kind of dating website for for kidney patients, where it matches people who need a kidney with people who are willing to give one. That then you can find a person that way. Or another idea I came up with, you alluded to the people who adopted 20 special needs kids. That's that's another idea I came up with. I thought, well, maybe the person I'm looking for might adopt many children who are unlikely to be adopted by anyone else. And once I came up with that idea, I went to a uh, an adopt adoption agency that specializes in 
special needs children. Um, I started reading adoption newsletters, and I found um, Sue and Hector Badeau, who uh, had adopted 20 special needs kids, which was even more than I had it occurred to me was possible. And um, so I, I started looking for people who inspired me. And, you know, while I wanted to find people who pushed their moral commitment much farther than uh, most people can even imagine doing. I didn't want people who were, um, who seemed, I didn't want people who were crazy. I'm sure there are crazy uh, altruists out there, just like there are crazy any kind of people. And I didn't want people who um, were obviously annoying or uh, whose ideas were were really wrong. I, I wanted people who presented a challenge to the rest of us because that was the point. I wanted people uh, who weren't easily dismissed, who you couldn't immediately say, well, of course, that kind of person is totally different from me. They're kind of some kind of uh, ethical Martian. I, I, they have nothing to do with my life. I wanted people who were um, recognizable, whom you could you could uh, empathize with and think, ah, that actually is a life that I can imagine living, but for the things I'm not prepared to give up. It's, it's almost unimaginable to me, even though I fully understand what you're saying about choosing people that each of us could relate to, could say, oh, I'm not that far different from that person, or that seems mm-hmm. like a regular person to me, right? But two people who, who adopt 20 people... I, I'm I'm breathless. What well, are they tell, tell us about these people? Yeah, what are they yeah, like? Yeah. Well, the first thing mm-hmm. I want to say, just to, to put it in perspective, is that the man of the couple, Hector Badeau, grew up in a family of sixteen biological kids. So, you know, for most of us, twenty <sighs> kids, twenty-two kids, in fact, because they had two biological in addition to the twenty they adopted, uh, is an unimaginable number. But for him, it was more or less normal. It was bigger than his family of origin, but it wasn't that much. But bigger. only by four. <laughs> well, well, six, six, or because six? they did have two biological kids of oh, their own. To the twenty, yeah. So, so that I, I want to put out there first of all to to put it in perspective, but. You know, they didn't start out intending to adopt 20. Their initial plan, these are Hector and Sue Badeau. They met in high school in Vermont, um, and they, she, Sue, had read a book when she was a little kid called The Family Nobody Wanted about another family in the 1930s, I think, who adopted not 20, but many special needs kids who were of all different uh, racial backgrounds. And this family had not uh, any money at all. And yet they had, they built together an unusual but very happy family. And Sue was inspired by this book as a kid. And she thought, that is the life that I want. She'd always wanted to do this. It wasn't like she felt, oh, the poor suffering kids, I must uh, sacrifice all my pleasures to help them. No, this was a life that she wanted. She was passionate about. She was driven towards even before, even when she was still a kid herself. And so she met Hector in high school and they agreed um, that they both wanted to do this. And their initial plan was to have two biological kids and to adopt two. But that plan got a little derailed because they became involved in, they started going to adoption conferences and they became involved in the adoption world. And they learned that while, you know, so-called 
desirable um, babies to adopt went very quickly. Uh, you know, typically white babies, typically infants, very soon after they were born, uh, without any obvious um, mental or physical challenges. Those babies were easily adopted, but there were so many children who didn't fall into that. Uh, category who are unlikely ever to be adopted, who are unlikely ever to have parents, who are likely to spend their whole childhoods going from foster home to foster home, sometimes being horribly abused, at, at the very least having no stable home. Often the sibling, siblings would be separated into different homes and maybe never see each other again. So the, the more they learned about this, the more they realized, you know, we can't stop it too. There are too many other children who need parents. And so they started adopting more. They adopted a sibling group of four. Then they adopted a sibling group of six teenagers aging from, I think, 13 to 19. You know, no one else was going to adopt six teenagers um, at once. In Let, the let's family. explain something to our, our listeners, Larissa. Because you're mm. talking about this couple adopting, that means that's different than taking foster children where you oh, get for where sure. you get that's the whole point. in foster children you get paid by either the county, the state, or the federal government. But when you adopt, you're on your own, correct? Well, not anymore. This is the great thing. This is one of the change in laws that Sue advocated for. Sue became very involved in the, in the adoption world as a speaker and a political advocate. And it used to be, as you say, that once you when, when, in, when you had took kids in as a foster parent, you got paid by the state. And if you adopted them, you were on your own. But this, of course, provided a very uh, perverse incentive. It gave parents a big reason never to adopt because right. Maybe the parents didn't have any money, and they couldn't afford to take in children, and so they never adopted them because they couldn't afford to lose the subsidy. That law was changed um, to take away uh, that disincentive to adoption. And so now you do get helped out by the state, but it's never enough. And it depends. The, the subsidies vary widely from state to, sp to state depending on uh, where you adopt your kid from and what kind of disabilities they may have. So they were getting some money, which was absolutely necessary for them because they grew up without, you know, they did not have money growing up. It's not like they, they were independently wealthy and could afford a huge house to house these children. But they started taking them in. And, you know, at first it was relatively easy. Um, they loved having children. They, they loved having a, a big, somewhat chaotic family. And the kids were young and, you know, you bring in a new kid and, and they think, oh, great, someone else to play with. But then as the family started getting bigger and bigger and bigger, you know, 15 kids, 18 kids, 19 kids, then, and the children were getting older by this point, then they started to protest. And they would say, you know, they would have family meetings and say, Mom and Dad, you've got to stop adopting. You've got to stop. We don't have enough money. We don't ha and you don't have enough time. You, we don't get enough of your attention as it is. The family is big enough. They're, we can't take all the children in the world. And this would cut Sue and Hector to the quick because, you know, this is not an orphanage. This is a real family, and they love their kids like anyone loves their kids. And for most people, that would have been the end of it. If your kid says, please, I need your attention, I need your love, don't bring in more kids, that would be the end of it. Because for most people, they want to do as much as they possibly can for the children they have. And not only do they want to, they think that's the right thing to do. But Sue and Hector, while they wanted to give their kids as much as they could, they couldn't forget, and this is what's different from them and most people, they could not forget the other kids out there, still strangers to them, but in need. They knew about them, and they thought, well, 
let's let's suppose it's true, not necessarily true, but let's suppose it's true that if we adopt more kids, it will make our our own, our current kids' lives a little bit worse. But if it makes those other kids' lives dramatically better, then it's worth it. And so this is the you know this is the heart of the conundrum for many of the people I'm writing about. It's not the things you would think about immediately, like, oh, they give up uh, nice clothes, they give up meals in restaurants, trips abroad. That's true. They give up all those things. But those are not the hard part for this sort of morally committed person. The hard part for them is the conflict between caring for their family and caring for strangers. You care deeply for your family. All of them do. It's not like they have no love for their children or their parents or whomever they consider their own. It's just that that's not all they have. They feel that they also have a deep responsibility to people outside their family, even if they're strangers to them. So the question that I hear that they are looking at, that some of these folks are looking at, is, is it worthwhile to make my own and my family's life a bit less or a bit worse, if you will, in order to make others dramatically better? That's right. That's and, the trade-off, you know, huh? That's the trade-off, and most of us would say no. You know, the, the book is called Strangers Drowning, and the there are many philosophical problems where people drown, and I it became, it became, as I read a lot of philosophy as background for this book, I uh, began to find that kind of funny. But the one in particular that I was thinking of is um, the conundrum that suppose you're standing on the beach and your family member, your wife, your daughter, your uh, brother is drowning over here. And over there is a bunch of strangers drowning. And whom do you save? Now, if it's only one stranger versus your loved one, of course you save your family member. Of course you do. And anyone would, even even do-gooders. But suppose it's two strangers. Suppose it's 10 strangers. Suppose it's thousands of strangers. At what point do you start to feel my choice is getting is making me feel a little morally queasy um, because sometimes that is the choice. And you know, in real life, of course, it's not about drowning. It's not about saving the life of your family member. Usually, it's about depriving them of some comforts that they would like. So let's take another couple that I wrote about: um, Julia and Jeff, Julia Wise and Jeff Kaufman. Um, they don't adopt a lot of kids. Their mode of altruism is to give away money. They give away as much of their income as they possibly can, which is a very, very large percentage. And um, they think, well, I, if I keep, um, you know, let's say $100 for myself and spend it on something frivolous rather than sending it to a charity that I'm pretty confident will spend it well on, let's say, medication or a bed net to prevent malaria. Um, I'm valuing myself, my frivolous thing, over the life of another person. Is that okay? No, they don't think it's okay. So they don't feel, you know, this is another actually interesting thing about these people that I'm writing about. They don't feel that they are um, doing something extraordinary. They just think they're doing what any decent person would. They think, how could I buy myself, uh, you know, a, a nice outfit in, rather than giving the money to save somebody's life? It doesn't make any sense to them, and they don't understand why more other people don't think the same way. And so in their case, 
um, they thought very carefully about having children at all because they knew that if even if they were very frugal parents, they would inevitably end up spending some money on raising their child. And so that would be money taken away from that would otherwise have been given to charity. And so the way Julia thought about it was, if I have a child, I will be in effect killing other people's children. That's how the choice appeared to her. And that was, that was something she struggled with for a very long time, as you can imagine, if it appears that way to her. Ultimately, she decided to have a child because she thought, I want to be committed over the whole of my life. And for me, if I don't have a child, that is the point at which I break. That is the point at which my life starts to seem so bleak and unhappy to me. And I've, my sacrifice so unbearable that I'm in danger of burning out, of losing my commitment and stopping uh, my altruism altogether. So she decided that it made sense for her to have a child and maintain her sanity. And that's, that was a very difficult decision for her, but it was one that she had to, had to make, and I think she made the right decision for the long term. That was a far different decision of whether to have her own child at the cost, perhaps, of helping other children than whether to deny herself a new dress at the cost of someone else yeah. uh, you know, eating. This is a very different decision. By the way, you're listening to Melissa McFarker. She's written us a book called Strangers Drowning, Grappling with Impossible Idealism, Drastic Choices, and the Overpowering Urge to Help. This is a must-read book, folks. It's, it's interesting. It's fascinating. It's intriguing. Uh, we're here on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, and I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. Let's come back to uh, one of the other people in your book, uh, the ones that went to India and started a leper colony, which basically took their entire lives and they had their children there. Tell us about them. Well, the first thing I should say is they didn't um, go to India. These were um, a couple who were born oh, in that's India, right. but, yes, yes. but they did. So they were Indian, but um, they moved out they into did, right. Well, yes, exactly. I mean, they they left. They might as well have been born in another on another planet because they were both raised in in quite uh, upper class, rich homes in the center of India, near um, near the the closest uh, city is Nagpur, and. They grew up in these rich homes, but neither of them felt quite comfortable in those homes. And the man of the couple, Baba Amte, uh, had always been uncomfortable with uh, being the sort of typical upper-class boy. He was always fighting. He was always getting involved. He was involved in revolutionary movements before uh, Indian independence. He, he, he was a tough guy. He, he was, his own courage was very important to him. And he was looking for some something to do with his life that was more meaningful than simply becoming a lawyer, as his parents wanted him to. And one day he was walking past, um, walking along the road in the rain when he saw a leper in the last stages of the disease, which was a terrifying sight, crawling with maggots, the face caved in. I mean, it does, it's a really horrible disease that, that decays the body significantly before you even die. And he saw this this person, and he was terrified of catching the, this horrible disease, and he ran away. And this, then he thought, I ran away. And he, I, as I said, courage, his courage was very important to him. And he couldn't bear the idea of himself as a coward. So out of sheer machismo, he forced himself to go back and care for this person. And, you know, this leprosy patient was far gone. He soon died. But... 
Baba Amte decided, I am going to steer directly into this fear of mine. I'm going to make leprosy my life's work. And so he and his wife, and at the time they had two tiny children, both under the age of two, moved out. They got some land from the state, but it was terrible land. It was in the middle of the wilderness. There was no water, no food, and uh, there were wild animals everywhere. And as you said at the, uh, in the introduction, um, they brought with them four dogs to protect them from the wild animals, but they were useless. The wild animals, a tiger or a panther, picked off and ate all four dogs one by one. They didn't steal the human babies. The human babies survived. But as you said, they might not have. This was the degree of risk to which um, Baba Amte and his wife uh, Tai were willing to uh, put their family because they had a mission. And it actually worked out uh, extraordinarily well because they were two very extraordinary, hardworking, and brilliant people. And they built this community that is now, I think, around 5,000 people. Um, the leprosy colony is now being run by their um, by their son and, and grandchildren. Um, and it's a very flourishing place. It's It's well known all over India. But they had to take this risk in the beginning. And the sad thing but the is... the risk, that, let um, me interrupt here. The, yeah, the, the risk that you're talking about is gigantic. I mean, you talk about their children. Uh, yep. I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, Vikas and Prakash, who, mm -hmm. who hardly had enough food to, to live, let alone toys, right. let alone anything. You're talking about people in the middle yep. of nowhere. It sounded like they were digging wells by hand. This is they were. Yeah, this was 1950. They dug wells by hand for water. And they were totally isolated because they were living with leprosy patients. And the villagers, there were some villages, some uh, couple of kilometers off, but the villagers wouldn't have anything to do with them at first because they were terrified of catching leprosy. So they were these children, their children, um, were completely isolated. They were not allowed to play with any other children because of the fear of the disease. Not to mention uh, the fact that, that Baba's wife, Ty, has tuberculosis while this is going on, you bring to our attention. Well, exactly. And um, she, you know, she had tuberculosis. She was urged to go to the hospital, but she wouldn't go to the hospital because the people they were working with, the impoverished people they were working with, would not have been able to afford it. And she thought, well, what kind of justice is that if I can go to the hospital and they can't? They really threw their lives in with these patients completely. And their children had to come with them. And, and sometimes, you know, Baba didn't mind this. He thought, well, this will make my sons tough. And it certainly did. Um, but Ty felt guilty because she thought, you know, when Baba and I were growing up, we were given everything. We were pampered. We had the most cosseted, comfortable, uh, amusing lives as children. And what are we doing to our kids? And she she never felt quite right about that, even though Baba was right. It did make the sons tough, and the sons both went on to live extraordinary lives in their own right. The other things that this couple did are just one extraordinary act after another. We, we find in your book that they started a school for blind children. They started a school for deaf children. They, they started an orphanage. I mean, it goes on and on and on. Why, why well, in, in, your, in your research, Larissa... Yeah. Why, why aren't why aren't more people like this? Well, you know, it's funny the the the, the founding of one thing after another. In that sense, um, you know, Baba, that was that's not in itself a moral impulse. He did want to help more and more people, but what it reminded me of is is any kind of entrepreneurialism. You know, Baba was an unbelievably driven person, an unbelievably vigorous, even though. 
excuse me, even though he suffered from extreme arthritis himself much of his life and much of his life he had to lie down in bed could not um could not sit up but even so he was just he had this force um akin to somebody who might found one company after another or okay. you know mm-hmm. alexander the great who mm-hmm. would conquer one country after another it was never enough for him simply to build one community and make it a little bit better at a time he needed more and more and more and more and you know that's something that these uh these do-gooders that i've written about uh all have in common. They're incredibly driven people. They're unconventional. They don't care what other people think of them. And they are, you know, they are in some sense akin to any other kind of workaholic. You know, they want, they're passionate about what they're doing and they can never get enough of it. They're not interested in kicking back, in having a comfortable life, in watching television. You know, the things that we readily think oh, how sad it must be for them to give up. The ordinary comforts, the ordinary modes of relaxation are not, on the whole, that important to them. So giving those things up is not difficult. What makes them uh, excited and gives them a sense of fulfillment and happiness and purpose in life is fulfilling their mission, whatever that might be. In in Baba's case, building uh, one institution after another. Um, In the case of Hector and Sue, taking in more and more children, more and more challenges. Uh, In the case of Julia and Jeff, figuring out more and more ways to use their money well to to alleviate more and more suffering. You know, it's, it's a kind of drive that that in itself is not a moral thing, but a a matter of basic human force. Well, there are two more people I want to be sure that we cover in the next 15 minutes. And one of them is the person who donated a kidney to a stranger. And the mm-hmm. other one, the other one is particularly the professor who took to the streets so he could give away more of his money. And that whole genre of people who give mm-hmm. away a very high percentage of what they earn. So let's start with the, uh, with the lady who gave away her kidney. Yeah, well, this is, I found her because she gave away one of her kidneys because, um, you know, I, as I said earlier in the program, I, that was the first uh, deed I came up with uh, by which to find people, the extraordinarily moral people I was looking for. But when I started, to, and so I started talking to her about why she decided to donate, and she talked about it very casually. She'd heard about, um, she'd, heard, she'd heard on the radio about a young woman who needed a kidney, and she thought, well, you know, I got an extra kidney sitting around. I, I'll give it to her. Why not? And she just called the number that they read out on the radio, and it turned out she wasn't a good match for that particular uh, woman, but the transplant center that she had called said, well, would you be willing to donate to somebody else? And she said, well... Heck, sure. The (laughs) the extraordinary thing about this person, though, was that this deed, which seemed to me so extraordinary, and I think probably to most people it would seem extraordinary, was just really a small thing in a long life of much even more extraordinary actions. Because for her, she thought, well... You know, she's. Uh, let me tell you a bit about her. She's a um, she's a Methodist uh, minister in Baltimore, and she has spent much of her life as a missionary abroad. And she's lived under very, very, very severe conditions. And even now that she's living back in the states, um, you know, a lot of the stuff that she does is very difficult and very unlikely to succeed. So one of the things she wanted to push her 
her, her congregation towards was doing more for homeless people in the area. And there was a lot of resistance. You know, the congregation was somewhat old-fashioned, and they wanted the church just to be a church. They didn't want the church to be a homeless shelter. They didn't want it to be a soup kitchen. And she really felt that they needed to do more. And that was a big battle. And many people wanted her to leave. Many people didn't want her to be there in the first place because she was a woman. Um, you know, those kinds of things were very difficult. And she wasn't sure at all that they could, su- could succeed. From her point of view there, therefore, the prospect, and this, I found it so funny, you know, the prospect of, of doing something that she was pretty sure, you're never 100% sure, but these days you're pretty sure that a transplant is going to work if they have done all the tests and matched you up, pretty sure would succeed, and she would do it while asleep. And then afterwards, she would get to take a day off or two days off. Most people take a month off, but for her, one or two days off to recover. She thought, this is a cinch. This is great. I mean, this is a no-brainer. Why wouldn't I do this? You know, I get to go and lie on a hospital bed, and they'll, the surgeons will do their thing, and at the end of it, somebody's life will be saved, and and um, I'll, I'll have accomplished something while not even awake. So to her, this seemed like a very small episode in a long life of much harder choices. I'll give you an example of a harder choice she faced, which yet again um, has to do with thinking about her family versus strangers. Her uh, most recent mission posting, along with her husband, who's also a a Methodist minister, uh, was in uh, Senegal. And it wasn't in the capital, which I've heard is a wonderful city, but it was in a rural area, which was very, very conservative. And at the time, their youngest child was still living at home. She was in, in high school. And their youngest child has learning difficulties, which are quite obvious when you meet her. People were very curious and not in a nice way about this. And also, because it was such a a conservative uh, part of the country, um, women really didn't leave the house and girls did not leave the house. And if this girl did leave the house, people would uh, crowd around her and make fun of her for the way that she looked and the way that she acted. And so... She really came not to leave the house, and months went by, and Kimberly Brown Whale, who is the woman I've been talking about, the kidney donor and the missionary, would see her daughter stuck at home, uh, unable to leave the house, thousands of miles from her siblings and from everything she knew, really suffering, and she thought, you know... On the one hand, I've made a commitment to my church, and that really is important to me, and I believe sincerely that I'm needed here as as a missionary. On the other hand, I have a commitment to my child. And ultimately, she thought, you know, the church has many workers, but my daughter has only one mother. I've got to take her home. But that was a very tough decision for her because she felt this is my daughter, but there are many people, many people's daughters, many people's children out here who also need help. Ultimately, she decided in favor of her daughter, but that was not easy. So you see what I mean? That And, and you know, and another mission posting, she was posted with her husband in Mozambique uh, at a very difficult time in that country's history. It was just at the end of a very long, very violent, protracted civil war. And, um, there was a lot of violence around. At one point, her husband got knocked to, the, knocked to the ground, beaten up, and left for dead at the side of the road. And nobody helped him. And her son, she discovered, had a heart condition that could be treated only in the U.S. And for she took her son home to be treated. But then she came back to Mozambique because she felt, I have a duty here. And her parents, the boy's grandparents, 
begged her to stay in the U.S., not to go back to this violent place where there wasn't good medical care for her kids. But she felt, I have a duty. I'm going to go back. So, you know, in the context of this life devoted to very, very difficult choices, the decision to give away a kidney, bah, she thought it was nothing. Do we all have the same duty, Larissa? I don't think we do. I mean, well, for one thing, most of us don't feel that uh, being a missionary is part of our... Well, um, no, no, I'm sorry. I wasn't clear. I I, I beg your pardon. I didn't mean the duty to go and, and live in Mozambique. I meant more generally the duty to give and to help more than we do. More than we do. I think for sure. For sure. I think almost all of us could give more than we do. I think that's an easy one. The question is how much. Uh That's when it gets difficult. And, you know, I wholeheartedly admire the people in my book. I think they are living extraordinary lives. I think they're doing a lot of good. And I think each one of them has done something very, very difficult, which is make a decision about where they need to draw the line, uh, how to preserve their sanity and preserve uh, the the loves and lives of their family um, and how you know how to how to maintain their commitment in the long haul without destroying what's most important to them they've all managed to do that i'm sure there are people who don't but these people have managed to do that that said then i had to ask myself the question as i was thinking about these people who i did admire so much um should we all be like that is that the conclusion should should the world be would the world be better if everybody thought like these people i admire And I'm not sure that it would, because on the one hand, it's clear that we can all help much more than we do and that the world would be better if we did. On the other hand, do we want a world where helping is the only life there is, where all anyone should do is help others? A world like that, it's not clear, for instance, what would happen to art. That's something that uh, some do-gooders have difficulty thinking about. Um, What would it be if everyone were helping their neighbor and nobody were uh, creating art, creating music, writing, um, doing any of these things that for many of us make life worth living? And so, and of course, also the conundrum that we've been talking about throughout this program, um, family versus strangers, a world in which everybody thought I'm obliged to help strangers even at the expense of my family would be a very, very different world. And It might be a world without strangers. There would be no concept of a stranger. It's true, though most of these people, you know, you, they, they don't feel equally about every stranger. I mean, so take Sue and Hector Badeau, for instance, um, who are adopting, who have adopted 20, 20 kids. They don't feel equally obliged to help every sort of person. They made a commitment when they were very young to help children who needed a home. And they feel a very strong obligation to those kids. But it's not as though there are uh, no strangers. I mean, I think for them, strangers means people outside their their mission, outside uh, the group that they have pledged their lives to help, which right. is to say children without parents. What, so, I, meant, what I meant was if the, we all took more of the attitude mm-hmm. of the people in your book and treated all people as part of the family of people, so to speak, 
then there might not be a concept of strangers, just like in, say, a small village when there's 30 people or mm -hmm. 80 people, nobody's strangers. We all know each other. One time I went to a small college at the end of four years. I knew almost everyone, at least by face, in the college. And so there was no sense of strange or anonymous. There was no anonymity. Uh, presently, I'm living in a small town, and it's a very different feeling than when I've lived, say, in New York City. Uh, it's extremely different. I'm, and so I'm, I, it's just an interesting thing to think about, whether, whether there, there is a way for us all to be less strange to one another through acts of, of helpfulness. I, I want to ask you a personal question. How has this book changed your life? Well, I, I will answer that in a second, but I just wanted to, to respond to, to your um, very moving comments about um, there not being any more strangers, uh -huh. because, you know, I think uh, a world in which there were no more strangers would be lovely. But the problem is, if there are no more strangers, then perhaps there's also no more family. Can there be a sense of deep, intimate devotion to people close to you if you feel uh, a similar sense of devotion to everybody? You know, the question is, if, you know, many world religions have this notion of no more strangers, of, of the world is your family, all humans is your brothers, etc. But they don't really mean that, or if they do, it really does destroy something that's so so central to the way we think about human life, namely, no, our family is different. We are devoted to our family more and in a completely different way than we are to those outside. And it's impossible to have both of those things. Um, I mean, there was a dialogue at the very beginning of my book um, that I, I was present for, a conversation between a philosopher, uh, a, a middle-aged philosopher and his student. And the student said, you know, we ought to try to feel uh, something closer to universal brotherhood, that the world would be better if we did. And the philosopher, who's older, who has children of his own, said, no, not only is that impossible, it's undesirable, because if I felt uh, a love for everybody in the world, the love for my own family, equal to that of my own family, either the love for my family would be, would be very, very shallow, or um, the love for everybody in the world would be completely crippling. Because if I felt about strange, distant strangers as I felt about my own child, I would be uh, in a constant state of panic and suicidal misery because I would know how much misery there was in the world. And if it was taking place, uh, if it was happening to somebody I loved as much as my own child, uh, life would be completely obliterating and impossible. Only, so, if the, only, But only if there's a lack of acceptance of the natural way of things. That, well, that kind of suffering. Of parental that, love. Mm, I'm I mean, raising the question. Where, yeah. well, I'm raising the question about is that what they're talking about, that sense of the suffering and not being able to filter out the suffering related to a, a, a lack of acceptance of this is part of what life is about. It's about life and death, and it's about pain, and it's about glory, and it's about a lot of things. And if we accept it, then we don't have that sense of, of, of having to filter out the suffering. I think there's room here, for example, to study people such as uh, the Dalai Lama, who seems to love everyone. Does he love his family less? And also, just, I'm thinking about the people, I think they were called metapalifs, who were the uh, teachers at the kibbutz, kibbutzim in, in Israel who had 
20 children of their own or 30. Remember, everybody put their children into mm -hmm. the one school and mm -hmm. the Metapalef took care of them. And I wonder, it would be interesting to interview them and find out about their love for all of these children and did it differ from the love they had for their own uh, specific biological children. I guess I'm idealistic. That is another good question. Yeah, I mean, well, I, I, I'm not sh I, I, I guess what I would worry about is that, I mean, acceptance sounds good in the abstract, but, you know, suppose... Um, you you knew a parent whose child had just died some gruesome death, and they said, "Well, I accept it. That's life." You you probably wouldn't say, "Well, how spiritually enlightened of them." You might say, "Gosh, that's cold. Why aren't you on your knees and wailing?" Because At least but, that would be my reaction. Sure, but but saying that, "Why aren't you on your knees and uh, knees and wailing?" is coming from a position. It's coming from a belief system that quote you should be on your knees and wailing because that's what we do when somebody close to us dies rather mm -hmm. than, I mean, we do know there are those and we make fun of them who believe that death is a positive thing because they go on to a better life in the hereafter. I'm not saying I, I support that view, but I'm saying it is also a view. Oh, for sure. Right? If you believe that, then yes, absolutely, that would make more sense. But I'm, my point is, is simply that acceptance of, of life's grief is is a good thing, but uh, it would be a little disturbing if applied to the death of one's child in the immediate aftermath, I think, um, which is why I think I agree with the philosophy professor I quoted that it's impossible to love everybody in the world as you love your child, and so you have to think carefully about what you are going to do about the, the pretty immovable human fact that you love your family more. How much attention do you pay to that? Do you try to suppress that, uh, that additional love, or do you embrace it and uh, come up with a morality that has room for, for that? For differences. We have one minute left. Are you giving more in certain ways in your life as a result of writing this book? You find yourself thinking about it. Should I give a little bigger tip? Should I give a little bit more here or there? How is that affecting you? Well, you know, I, th I thought about that a lot before, which is why I wanted to write a book in the first place. But uh -huh. it certainly changed how I give. Uh -huh. um, I gave before in a much more haphazard fashion um, based on guesswork. And now I've discovered this wonderful organization called GiveWell, which is a kind of uh, better business bureau for charities. And I find their uh, analyses and recommendations incredibly helpful. It's given me much a much better sense that if I give some money, it's not going to be frittered away. The, these charities that they have identified are doing really superb, reliable work. So you know it's not going to administration, it's actually going to do some good. Mm -hmm, and I, exactly. think, I think on that note, we're going to end the interview and, and thank you. Melissa, uh, Larissa McFarquhar, Strangers Drowning is a book you all need to read. It's Penguin Press. I'm sure you can find it on Google or Amazon. Larissa, thank you so much for being with us today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I really thank appreciate you, your being here. And so there have been changes here at the station. Uh, some of you know that uh, John Cote, the general manager, has left. Mary Eigner, our program director, and Rich Culbertson, our engineer. We want to thank them very much for their contribution in making this program possible over the many years. And we want to welcome Lorraine Dechter, Angela DeWitt, and now Mark Spear, who are working at the station. Lorraine is GM. 
um, uh, Angela as program director and Mark was engineering for us today. Thank you so much for joining and also making mind, body, health, and politics possible. And thank you all, dear listeners and gentle friends, for listening to today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, which is made possible by our KZYX staff that I just mentioned and our in-studio engineer, my dear friend, Mike Delora. Please join us again in exactly two weeks at 9 o'clock Pacific Daylight Time. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Miller reminding you that good health is working real hard for and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Thank you.